So we do open up now to the Word of God. We are in the book of 1 Samuel, looking at this main idea of the rise of a king already in the first seven chapters. We've seen the rise and fall of several leaders in Israel. The first seven chapters in many ways are a prelude. The main plot line begins in earnest today, and we'll read today how the people of Israel are longing for a king. They're longing for a king. They crave a leader. They, they actually want someone to rule over them. We'll read how the people want a king who can provide vision and unity for them, who can uphold the law and bring justice to their nation, who can protect their enemies and lead them into battle. Now, this may sound strange to our 21st century ears. Why would anyone want a king? Why would anyone long for a ruler? Many of us have grown up with the notion that the best possible scenario is for us to be free of any ruler or any leader, right? If you could have no one to demand your attention, no one you need to follow, no one you need to pledge your allegiance to, wouldn't that be wonderful, right? Many of us live with the idea that the, the best possible way to live would be to have complete individual autonomy to just do whatever you want but I don't think that that mindset actually explains the human experience I believe that all humans are actually designed by God to be led if you look at every civilization every society there are leaders there are a system of government in place with officials even the most primitive tribes have elders but you look even beyond government, all of society is formed around leadership. That's why people get behind a visionary political leader, even at times getting swept up in a corrupt or flawed system of government. That's why employees will follow and dedicate 20, 30, 40 years to an inspirational CEO of their company. That's why we have athletes and actors and cultural icons that amass huge followings because people want someone to look to. They want someone to inspire and lead them. Even in our own families, someone will rise up and set the tone and lead in the home. People long to be led. The question is not will you be ruled or who, but the question really is who will you be ruled by? Will you give yourself to be ruled by a flawed human leader because all human leaders are, are flawed? Will you maybe seek to rule yourself, to be your own ruler and, and maybe amass a following, whether it's two or three or, or whatever it may be, to, to be your own ruler of your life? Or will you this morning in your life pledge your allegiance, submit yourself to the rule and reign of the one and only true King of Kings and Lord of Lords? See, Scripture teaches again and again that the only our God is the true king of his people. Scripture says in the Psalms that God is king of all the earth. The book of Exodus says that the Lord will reign forever and ever. Don't forget that. Don't miss that. When the world seems to be spiraling out of control, when chaos seems to be reigning, when war is erupting, when your own heart and your own family is crumbling, the Lord will reign forever and ever. He is king. Now the people of God, the nation of Israel in the day of Samuel, had always had leaders you go back and you read about Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Gideon and Samuel, but the people of God never had a king. Israel never had a human king because they were what we call a theocracy. That meant God was their king. From the very first time that, that God pledged a covenant with Abraham to the founding of the nation through Moses, God was their king. As we've been reading Samuel was leading Israel not as a king, but as a prophet, as a judge, as a person of influence. 
But, but Samuel really is the last of the judges. The judges come to an end with him. What, what is a judge? We've been reading, if you were here with us when we went through the book of Judges or even the first seven chapters of 1 Samuel, the Hebrew word that we translate as judge really is a little bit broader. It means one who governs or judges over people. Now, there were priests in Israel who served in the tabernacle. They were well-established at this point, but they were religious leaders. They didn't have civil authority. They led the nation in worship and in sacrifices, but a judge was a civil ruler. And it was more than just somebody who sat in a courtroom to judge legal cases, although they would have had that function. If you go back and look at the book of Judges, we read there about Gideon and Samson. Often those judges served primarily as military generals. But we've seen already in the life of of Samuel and his ministry that he's judging more broadly, right? He has a prophetic role, a judicial role, a governmental role, and a military role. And you say, well, wait a minute. If there are judges in place in the nation of Israel at this period of history doing all of this, then why are the people of God still longing for a king? After all, they've got Samuel. There's a big difference between a judge and a king. There's at least three main differences. For those that are taking notes, you can jot down. The first is that judges were situational. That means that there would have been a specific crisis or need that would have arisen in the nation. The people of God would cry out and God would raise up a judge to address that situation, either to lead a military campaign or to bring religious reform. Judges were situational. They were also regional Right? Often the particular situation or circumstances the judges were, were raised up to lead over was only in a particular region of Israel. They, the judges typically did not serve as central leaders unifying all of the 12 tribes. But they were also temporary because once the need was met or the victory had been won, their leadership often ended. And we do not find with the judges in Israel a succession plan. Their authority didn't automatically transfer into their family line. And so rather than leaders that were situational, that were regional, that were temporary, the people of God are longing for a king. And we're going to read this morning in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel their desire. And initially it comes out as a demand. They demand a king. And we're going to read about the implications that this demand says about their heart. We're going to read Samuel's warning to them. And then we'll read about the final result. So with all of that kind of in mind, you guys with me? Okay, good. Let's, let's jump in and read the Word of God. 1 Samuel chapter 8, 22 verses. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba, yet his sons did not walk in his ways. But turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the tribes of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. 
from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the man of Israel, go, every man to his city. Amen. Amen. The Word of God, beginning this plot line that will last through First and Second Samuel into the book of Kings that will last for hundreds of more years. And this desire, this longing for a king. What's the situation? Samuel's old. People don't pull any punches. They call it like it is. They're like, Samuel, man, you're getting old, right? Now Samuel has tried to make a plan for his eventual death or, or retirement from leadership. He's involved his sons, we read in verse 1. Wouldn't have been assumed that a judge's sons would have been leading, but he sets them into, into a place of leadership in another region of Israel. But sadly, we read in verse 3 that his sons do not follow him. They're not walking his godly ways. Instead, they've strayed from a righteous life, and they've turned toward selfish gain, we read. They're taking bribes from the people. They're perverting justice in their judgment. Now, if you remember, we saw this same thing happen with Eli the priests, where their own sons as well walked away. We see a pattern here in Israel. And, and listen, just a little side point, but those of you that are in any position of leadership, leaders have not led well until they've trained the next generation. That's true for civil leaders, for pastors, for parents, for any leader. And despite what was in many ways godly leadership from, from Samuel and even times from Eli, they failed to train the next generation. The elders of Israel recognize that the future doesn't look good, and they're like, wait a minute, if Samuel's sons are allowed to rule, then the future of the nation is in jeopardy. And so in verse 4, the elders from each of the 12 tribes, they come to Ramah while Samuel is living for basically a conference, and they say to him, look man, you're on your way out, you're old, your sons are no good. They cannot lead us, we don't want them to lead us, we need you to appoint a king. A king to, to judge us, right? Remember, when you read that word judge, think to, to govern, to rule over our people so that we can be like all the nations around us. Now, initially, I framed this as a request from the elders. They come to Samuel with a request, but it's not really a request. It is, it is a demand, right? After Samuel warns them of the consequences in verse 19, they shout back, no, we will have a king to reign over us, right? They're not going to take no for an answer. They are demanding that this man of God install a king for them. Now, listen, 
the elders of Israel have appropriately and accurately identified a real problem. The future of the nation truly is in jeopardy. There were no prospects for a godly leader to, to act as a central ruler over the 12 tribes. But while they correctly identify the problem, they jump to a bad solution driven by bad motives. Right? They don't come to Samuel and say, look, Samuel, we're worried. What do you think we should do? They don't consult the Torah, the law of God. They don't pray or fast or offer sacrifices or seek God. What do they do? They look around at all the other nations. And they say, well, it works for them. All the other nations around us, they have a king. So why don't we do the same? We want to be like all the other nations, they say in verse 20. We want a king to govern over us. We want someone to go out before us. We want someone to lead us into battle. A ruler over their government, a general over their military, and a king in the ancient world. What Israel is craving is not just leadership, but they're craving nobility. A nobleman, invisible authority. They're craving a royal figure that would be exalted on a throne in their capital city. They're craving a, a consistent monarchy that would be passed down from generation to generation. They're looking for prominence among the other nations. If all the nations around you have a king and you're a group of tribes with no king, they want prominence before the nation. They want centralized power. They want national unity. They want status and prominence as a people before the world. This is how everybody else does it. But they've missed a key factor. They're not everybody else. They're the nation of Israel. They're God's covenant people. God is supposed to be their king. And they're looking to the ways of the world to give them what they need rather than looking to the ways of God. You see that? God had been their king ever since he had led them out of Egypt. Even Moses, the most powerful, most commanding authoritative figure in all of Israel was only an intermediary. He was a prophet who listened to God and did what God commanded. Moses was not a king. But they are looking to exchange their unique privilege of being led by God, of being a theocracy, their unique covenant privilege of calling God their king. Why? So that they can have status in the world. So that they can have comfort in the world. So they can go along with all that the world is doing. And it's so easy for us to get caught up in the same mentality so easy for us to get caught up in the same mentality when we are looking for leadership, perhaps according to the standards of the world, or we're faced with problems, we're faced with circumstances, we're, we're faced like the elders of Israel, we, we're looking and saying, well, this won't do. The current situation won't do. Do we look to the patterns, the practices, the wisdom of the world for our solution, our answers? Now, now look, I'm, I'm reading all this, I'm studying all this, and you have, to just, you have to just deal with what I had to deal with this week, which was rain in my office on my desk. So going back about two months ago, uh, the roof leaked on the desk in my office. We called the landlord, landlord called the roofers, roofers came in and, and repaired it. About a month later, we got another hard rain, and it's dripping again on my office. So we called the landlord again, the roofers come back out again. And so they're there on Tuesday, and Tuesday of this week, and they asked where the, the spigot was. We had to go up into the ceiling to turn the outdoor spigot on. They, they hook up a hose because the only way to really fix a roof leak, right, is to figure it out. And, and I'm sitting out in the, in the main meeting area. Our staff meeting had over. Amanda and I were doing some follow-up, and I had my laptop out there, which was a, a grace of God. 
Uh, and all of a sudden, I hear water gushing out of the ceiling in my office, and I look up, and it's just pouring. I, I ask Amanda to go get. I ask Amanda to go get towels. I run into the office, and I start grabbing everything I can off my desk, right? Books and papers. My laptop would have normally been been sitting right there. And the the, the one worker that was one guy on the roof and one guy inside, he runs outside to yell at the other guy to turn the hose off. They come back in. Now, now here. Here's, here's the thing, like in that moment, this all happens in a split second, right? Like I have to decide now, how am I going to lead through this situation? How am I going to respond to this situation? How am I going to act in this situation, right? This is a, a, a very genuine physical problem, but there's also mental, emotional, spiritual implications, right? But I'm also standing in a church office, right, as the pastor of Living Hope Church. Now, there certainly was a big part of me that, that wanted nothing more than to, to start ushering demands and commandments to, 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 to let my anger fly, to look for personal gain, right? Like, you, you're going to have to call your supervisor, come down here. You're replacing everything in my office, right? And yet, in that moment, am I going to look to the authority, the leadership patterns, the, the, the values, the principles of the world in terms of how I'm going to react? And all these things are rushing through my mind and through my heart, and some of them maybe seeped out more than I would have hoped when the guy from the roof came down. I said, are you the guy that had the hose? And I grabbed a little uh, uh, Nerf gun and shot him. Um, he, he, did, he did get a chuckle because he fell bad, but... Um, but, but you understand what I'm saying. I don't know what you face, whether it's a leadership dilemma, whether it's a, a value struggle. Will we seek to be like the world? Will we look to the world to solve our problems? Because the world says you just demand what you want. If you need to belittle people, belittle people. If you need to lash out in anger, lash out in anger. If you need to use circumstances and other people's wrongs, right? Because you don't just stick a hose down a vent pipe in a roof when you're trying to find a, a leak. Do you lash out and use other people's mistakes or their faults or their failures or their weaknesses for your own personal gain like Samuel's sons had done? Or do you grab the towels and clean up? Do you thank them that they at least found the leak? Do you try to be gracious? Do you try to represent Christ? Do you try to act in humility? Do you try to trust God for whatever is the outcome of things? By the way, that was only the first of what would have be two uh, flooding issues in our office. That's a story for another time, but, but Friday we had a separate unrelated uh, water I damage issue in, in the church office. So the Lord's dealing with me. Pray it does not come in threes. Um, friends, the people of, of God at that time had appropriately identified the problem, an issue. They had foresight, but they looked to the world. They looked to the world to, to lead them in what they thought was going to be a solution. Do we look for status in the world and the way that we live and act in our families, in our workplaces, in our community? Are we looking for approval and status in the world around us? Are we looking to assimilate into the patterns and practices of the world like Israel was at that time? Or are we willing to stand for God with him as our king, to look to God in his word, to look in prayer, to look to godly leaders, to lead us into the path of righteousness, not into the path that feels easier, that feels more comfortable in the world around us? So, they make this demand because they want to be like the world. They want to, in some ways, take the easy way out or the most natural way out. But in so doing, in longing for a king, there are, there are severe implications. Look at verse 6. Because the implication of this demand is that they have rejected God. 
In verse 6, Samuel was discouraged by their request. He knows it's not right, but he's a godly man. Rather than him fire off a rash rebuke or come up with a solution on his own, he goes to God in prayer to seek counsel. And surprisingly, in verses 7 and 8, God replies and says, look, I want you to listen to the people. I want you to give them what they want. Don't take it personally. They're not ultimately rejecting you. They're rejecting me because ever since I brought them out of Israel, they have been turning from me. They're just doing to you the same thing they've been doing to me. They're a wayward people. They have always been forsaking me as their true God, always been turning from me as their one and only king and serving false gods. You go back and you look at the book of Deuteronomy. God had actually known the day would come when they would ask for a king and he had written into the law specifications for how a king would operate in Israel. But now, in this moment, they're not looking to the Torah. They're not looking to the law, and their motives are twisted, and they are rejecting God. And so in verse 9, God reiterates, Give them what they want. However, Samuel, I want you to warn them. If they're going to ask for this, if they're going to push through with this, if they're going to look for a human king, they need to know what they're getting. And so you need to warn them. Make sure they understand what they're asking for. Tell them how they will be treated if a king comes to reign over them. See, they've lost sight that they have the only good and wise king that they need. That God is the only true king for the nation of Israel and for all people. They've lost sight of the fact that God was to be their king, and in so doing, in asking for a human king with, with selfish motives, with worldly aspirations, they were rejecting their God. Look, brothers and sisters, any time that we look to another leader, any time that we look to another leader, whether that's a president, a governor, any civil ruler, if it's a supervisor at work, if it's a pastor in the church, if it's a cultural hero, any other person, including yourself, anytime you look to yourself or any other leader before you look to God, anytime you look to a ruler above God, anytime you look to a ruler instead of God, you are rejecting God as your one true king. God is to be our one true king. What does it mean to, to look to, to God as king? I thought of at least five areas where a king rules and reigns and leads his people. The first is purpose. To look to God as king means that he is the one who leads you, who gives you vision and purpose for your life. If God is your king, that you're a citizen of his kingdom, you're serving him. That's the purpose of your life. Secondly, to look to God as king means that, that he gives you a people. He is the one who gathers you, who unifies you. That was one of the, the primary realities of a king in the ancient world that would gather the people, unify the people, give the people an identity. We are now unified with the rest of God's followers, and God's people become our nation. Now look, we stand here today blessed, blessed to be Americans, but hear this, you're a Christian first and an American second, because God is your king. Christians are your people. Thirdly, to call God king means that he gives you principles to live by. He is the one who establishes the laws and the principles of your life. He is the one that you're submitted to. He is the one that you stand before as judge of your life. We, we're, not, we're not ultimately accountable to the world or their principles or their laws. We're, we're not to be judged by the world. We're to be judged by our king. God as king means that we look to him for our provision 
He is the one you look to to provide for all of your needs. Your daily bread, your eternal life, every physical need, every spiritual need. And yes, God will often use and work through institutions and people and jobs and and avenues of this world. But it all ultimately comes from God. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from above from the Father of lights. Our King is the one we look to for our provision And our king is the one we look to for our protection. Our God gives us our purpose, our people, our principles, our provision, and our protection. He is the one that protects you from all of your enemies. He is the one who leads you into battle. He is the one who has had victory over sin, death, and the devil. In any battle that you fight, you fight with him as your general, with him as your warrior, with him as your great victor who protects you from temptation, from emotional onslaught from any physical damage of the world around you. God is king. Now praise God that he has given us human leaders. Praise God that there are leaders in the government and leaders in the church and leaders in family. But any human leader, just as this was the case for for Israel and their kings, any human leader, any government official, any business leader, any cultural icon, any church leader or family leader, must be secondary to the rule and reign of God. The Bible does call us, Christian, to subject ourselves to civil authorities because the Bible says they have been set in place by God, but our hearts are only fully submitted to the Lord of hosts. We're called to honor those in authority over us, but the King of Heaven alone gets our full allegiance and single-minded devotion. We are called to obey our governing authorities, but only as an act of obedience to the one true King of Kings. We are called to pray for rulers in high positions, the scriptures tell us, but only the Lord of heaven gets our worship, gets the full worship of our hearts. We listen to human leaders, we respect human leaders, but we only follow and devote ourselves to leaders who themselves are following the ruler of all, right? What would it mean this week for you to live, this year, this decade, this life, for you to live with leadership in its proper perspective, for you to fully live with God as your king, that every president, governor, supervisor, every administrator, every official would ultimately be secondary to God as your king, that he would be the one that defines your purpose. He would be the one that calls you into unity with his people. He would be the one that sets out and calls you to live by his principles. He would be the one you look to for provision in your life, for protection in your life. Friends, listen, this has practical implications for every area of your life as you live as a Christian submitted to God as king. Yes, thankful. Yes, blessed for the leaders over us but fully given our hearts to God as king. And the people of Israel had forgotten that. We read that they rejected God. doesn't mean that every time you follow a leader, you're rejecting God. If you're following a godless leader, you are. If you're following even a godly leader with with wrong motives or with an overemphasis or a lack of priority. And so let's be men and women who put God in his proper place as our king, not rejecting him. Yes, longing for a king, but longing for our true king. Because Israel's longing for a king, but it's the the wrong kind of king, right? And so Samuel then gives them this severe warning. Look at verse 10 at the warning that Samuel gives. And he says, look, you want a king? This is what it's going to be like. A king will take from you. 
And so he returns in verse 10 to the gathering of the elders after he's been praying for God, with God, and he warns them. He says, look, if you want a king, God says you can have a king. But just so you know, God wants you to know this is what you're going to get. A king is going to take from you. He's going to take your sons. He's going to take capable men from your families, from your villages to build a standing army. He's going to recruit a cavalry and an infantry. Some men are going to be elevated into positions of officers to command and lead the army. Others are going to be recruited to work as farmers or craftsmen to manufacture weapons and chariots. But it's not just your sons that are going to be taken. Your daughters as well will be be taken. And they'll work in his kingdom as cooks and bakers. They'll make fine perfume. If you truly want a king to rule over you, Samuel says, he's going to need land. And so he's going to acquisition your best fields, take your best vineyards, take your best orchards so that the royal servants can keep the kingdom going and keep up this royal presence and this noble position before the nations. King is going to need money, going to need resources to run the kingdom. You want to be like all the other nations of the world? Okay, you're going to be taxed. King's going to take 10% of your livestock. It's going to take all that you 10% of what you harvest from your fields and your vineyards. The king is going to take your best slaves, your best servants, your best livestock. He's going to put them to work in the kingdom. In fact, we read in verse 17, it's not just that he's going to take your sons and your daughters and your livestock, but you yourselves will become his servants and you will become enslaved to this king of Israel. Is that what you want? Samuel's laying it out there. He's telling them, is that what you want? And he even says in verse 18, look, once all this plays out and once all this is carried out and this is put into practice and the kingdom is set up, there will come a time after you've been taken advantage of, after the king has abused his power and you will realize this is not what we want and you'll cry out to God. You'll cry out to God for help and for relief. But sadly, tragically, in verse 18, we read that this is their warning. And if this is really what the people of God want, the Lord is not going to answer them, Samuel says. He will not come to your aid when it all goes south. Now, I don't know about you, but I read this and I'm like, Samuel, you've done a pretty good job. Maybe you should be a lawyer and not a judge, right? Because you've just laid out the case really well. Who in their right mind would say, yep, we want to go ahead. Let's move forward with a king, right? Like, who in the world would want that? But the people of Israel are so blinded, are so short-sighted, are so, are so impacted by all that's going on in the world around them and how everybody else is doing it. It's not going to be that bad. At least then we'll be like everybody else. At least we'll have a standing army. At least maybe we'll have prominence and we won't be looked down upon as this ragtag group of ex-slaves. And so they say, yeah, let's, let's go ahead. And they, and they move ahead. We'll read next week in chapter 9 how Samuel will anoint the first king for them. But before we look at that, let's just stop for a moment at this warning. Human kings take from their people. Now some of what is laid out here, if you're going to have a kingdom, if you're going to have a functional, functional centralized government, of course you're going to need servants and military and land and that will require taxes. There are legitimate resources needed for a king to to run a kingdom but as we read here again and again this is going to be abused and the kings of israel take and take and take and take did you notice there's no mention of the ways that the king is going to serve the people only what they're going to take from the people 
Samuel's making it clear that, that this whole institution that they've asked for is going to go overboard, that these kings are going to abuse their power. And in fact, as you read the history of Israel, if you go and look and read in 1 Kings and 2 Kings, they do become selfish. They become self-centered. Like Samuel's sons that we read about at the beginning of the chapter, they each and every one of them seek their own gain. And they're corrupted and they're focused on their own power, building their own kingdom, not the kingdom of God. No longer serving God as their true king. And the kings in Israel become a godless enterprise, abusing their power and leading the people astray. Because listen, any and every human leader, apart from the, the grace of God, apart from full reliance on God himself, any and every human leader will eventually become flawed. And we have this amazing system of government in America with three branches and this checks and balance system. But you don't have to look. You could look through the 200 years of our nation's history. You look through the last 20 years, the last 20 minutes, right? Leaders find a way to abuse their power to seek selfish gain. Godless leaders will always take from the people underneath of them. How do you know the difference between a godless leader and a God-fearing leader? Because a God-fearing leader will give. A God-fearing leader gives to the people under his rule. Look at how the Lord rules. If God is, is truly king of kings, if God is intended to be king of Israel and king of his people, how does he rule? Our God is a king who gives, who gives to his people, gives abundantly, gives lavishly. Our creator has given us life has given us breath, has given us all of creation to enjoy, the beauty of creation. Your five senses can have endless joy and gifts in the world around us. Food and mountains and waters and rivers and marriage and family and relationships. Our king has not only given us all of creation, he's given us his, his very steadfast love. He's given us status in his kingdom as sons and daughters, as princes and princesses. He's given us a purpose in his kingdom, a place in his kingdom, not slaves, but sons and daughters. Our king, our savior, has given us salvation, given us forgiveness, given us eternal life. And even what our king asks from us, even what our king commands from us, because when you come into the kingdom to follow the king, the king does command, commands you to give back to him, to give back your heart, to give back your obedience, to give back your service and ministry to the, to the church to give financial offerings to the Lord. But even what we give back to the king is not something he's taking because even what we offer back to him isn't in and of itself life-giving. You'll find nothing more life-giving than to give all that you have back to your king. The king who is good and gracious and wise and generous. And even in your act of service, even in your offerings to him, there's life and there's freedom and there's beauty. And so think about that for a moment for leaders here at Living Hope Church. Husbands, how do you lead over your household? Mothers, how do you parent and lead your children? Those of you that are in places of, of management or supervisors at work, those of you here at Living Hope that have a ministry team, whether it's three people or 20 people, how are you leading? Are you someone who takes from those you lead or someone who gives? to those you lead. I thought this week as I meditated on this concept about Pastor Kurt Lines, I had to show, show Matt a picture of him this week on the internet because Matt always teases me. I always talk about Pastor Kurt and Matt's never met him. I said, he's real. 1999, 
The first time I ever, I ever met Pastor Kurt, I was, I was the best man at my friend Will's wedding, and he went to church with, with Kurt Lines, where Karen went to church. And Karen and I knew each other. That's a story for another time, but we eventually met and fell in love. But, so I'm at this wedding, and I'm giving this best man speech at the reception. And Pastor Kurt comes up to me after the service and says, hey, what are you doing with your life? And I said, well, I'm about to start seminary. I think I'm going to go into ministry. And he looked at me and he said, good, I just wanted to make sure you knew. And he then took me under his wing after Karen and I did get together and I moved to Elkton and I became a part of Glorious Presence Church and he took me under wing. Pastor Kurt was a man that had, I forget how many degrees, master's degrees and PhD. He had been a, a leader in the, in the Lutheran church, but had left the Lutheran church and had planted this small uh, uh, charismatic church in, in Elkton, Maryland. And he gave and he gave and he gave. Here's a man that quite literally he could lead worship, he could preach, he could organize, he could counsel. He actually didn't need anybody else in the church. He could have just done it all. And yet he invested in me. And I was this young seminary punk, thought that I knew it all, and he gave me time. And he listened to my endless questions and my endless ideas for how I thought everything should be done better or differently. He gave me his support in my seminary education and in my ministry. He gave me endless advice, endless opportunities for training, endless opportunities to be involved, to, to lead, to serve, to teach, to preach, to organize, to counsel, things that I probably had no business doing as a 24, 25-year-old. He gave me room. He gave me room to fail, room to make a, a, a fool of myself if need be. I was in charge of children's ministry and vacation Bible school. One summer we were doing a, it was a scuba-themed vacation Bible school. So to recruit leaders, I put on a wetsuit, filled up a baby pool in the parking lot and a, and a, and a, a snorkel mask and, and flopped down in the baby pool and, and tried to recruit people as they were coming out. And, and Pastor Kurt put up with that. Pastor Kurt... Every Christmas, he and his wife, and it took not one night, but probably three or four different nights, all the elders, all the deacons, all the staff, all the key leaders in the church, he and his wife would host us for a formal Christmas dinner in his home. And they pushed aside all their furniture and set out an extra table. Pastor Kurt put on a, 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 um, a tuxedo, and we would all come into his home and sit down, and he would, he would give us table service in his home for Christmas dinner. Just a giver. Just a giver prayed with me when I needed, forgave me when I needed it. Friends, how do you lead in your home, in the church, in your workplaces, in your community? Do you expect those who you lead to give you their attention, to give you their allegiance, but you are not generous with them? You're not displaying a generous heart that God, your king, has for you, that he has given you for others? Do you take from those you lead, whether it's a position of authority or simply a position of influence, or do you give them your focus? Think about your children. Do you give them your time? Think about those in the workplace. Do you give them your attention? Think about here in the church. Do you give them your love, or is it just checking a box, getting things done, grinding it out? Do you give those in your life your wisdom, your service? Do you, do you stand in, in leadership giving strength, giving courage, giving sacrifice? A godless leader will always take, but a God-fearing leader will always lead in reflection of the one true king and give generously. But sadly, as we've already said, after the people of Israel hear Samuel's warning and their longing for a king cannot be controlled. And so the result 
In verse 19, we read is that God gives them what they ask for. Verse 19, the people of Israel refuse to listen to Samuel's wisdom. They shout back to Samuel, no, we will have a king to reign over us. We want to be like all the other nations. Verse 21, Samuel reports back to the Lord what the people have said. I have a feeling God probably already knew, but, but Samuel needs to vent his frustrations, right? And he's like, God, this is what the people said. And God says, I know, Samuel. And he reassures him in verse 22. He says, give them what they ask for, appoint for them a leader. And so resigned and submitted to the will of God, Samuel sends everyone home. And we'll read next week how he begins to anoint the first king. Now, why in the world, as we begin to wrap up, why in the world would God grant their request? Why would he give them a king when he knew it wasn't going to be good for them? Why wouldn't God just say no when he knows their motives are flawed? I think there's at least three reasons. First of all, sometimes, people give, sometimes God gives people the longing of their heart as a consequence for their sinful heart. Right? That's why verse 18 says that when the people cry out to God for mercy... In the face of these unjust kings, God will not answer them. They are ultimately going to face the consequences of what they've asked for, of their sinful hearts. We read in the New Testament in Romans 1 that sometimes God gives people up to the lusts and the dishonorable passions of their heart as an act of judgment. Listen, sometimes the only act of judgment God needs to give is simply to allow people to have what they've asked for. But secondly, God will give his people, what they've asked for, knowing it won't be for their initial good because he knows that it will lead towards their ultimate good. See, the inadequacy of the human kings that we read about in the Bible will eventually make it abundantly clear to the people of Israel that their longing of their heart for a king must only be, be God. And it's not until time and time again when they see the flawed kings that they eventually realize, you know, maybe what we've asked for is not what we truly need. Maybe what we truly need is God. Have you ever been in a position like that where you longed for something, God gave it to you, and then you realized, oh, this isn't what I needed? Maybe you longed for a new job, hoping it would give you meaning and purpose. God gives you the job, and then you discover, you know what? I'm just as empty and without purpose as I was before I got the promotion. God is making it abundantly clear to you that purpose and meaning must come from Him. Maybe you, when you were younger, you asked God for a a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a spouse and you eventually score what you hope is the man or woman of your dreams only to discover that you still don't have the kind of love and acceptance that your heart truly craves. God is making it abundantly clear that only his love will fulfill you. You ever ask God for more of something? Whatever it might be, more time, more money, more, more, more wealth, more health, more energy, only discover after you get it that you still don't have enough. And God is saying to you, don't you understand what you truly need more of is more of me. So sometimes God gives us what we ask for so that we'll realize how inadequate it is and how we are only fulfilled in him. But thirdly, the third reason that God gives the people kings is because he's laying a foundation, he's laying a framework to carry out his eternal plan for a Messiah. In the book of 2 Samuel, we read how through the legacy of the kings, through the great King David, God will establish a covenant. And one day through the line of the kings, the true anointed one, the true messianic king will rise up to rule and reign in God's kingdom. And so for hundreds of years, through dozens of failed kings, through the exile, through the return, the people of God wait and they yearn and they long for a king until finally one day in a stable in Bethlehem, 
A child is born, the offspring of David, the true king of Israel, the true one who would arise to fulfill the covenant, who would rescue God's people, who would restore the world. Jesus, the fulfillment of the kingly system that Israel longed to have. Jesus, the one and only King of kings and Lord of lords who came to earth for you and I to die on a cross in our place, to rise again, to do battle for us, to conquer sin, death, and the devil. Put faith in him as your king because Jesus fulfills all of your deepest longings for leadership, all of your deepest longings for a visionary. Look back at those list of five things. It's King Jesus who gives your life purpose. He is the visionary leader who calls you a citizen of his kingdom to give you purpose in his kingdom, serve him and him alone. It's through faith in Christ that you now have a people. He is our rallying king that gathers and unifies us with the rest of God's people. We now belong to the nation of Christ, so unite around him. King Jesus gives you principles to live by. He's a righteous judge that gives laws for your life. Submit to him as the judge of your life. He gives provision In every moment of every day, Jesus is a generous provider. Look to him to provide for your needs, for your cravings, for your physical and spiritual needs. Rely on him for your daily bread and for your eternal life. And Jesus is a victorious warrior who gives you protection, protection from all of your enemies, physical and spiritual, who leads you into battle. And so rest in his victory and stand with him. Amen? Listen, as the worship team comes... I want you to remember this scene as Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate, who who was a representative of the emperor, the greatest king the world had ever seen. And, And Pontius Pilate accused Jesus of treason for claiming to be a king. And Jesus answers the charges and says that he has a kingdom that's not of this world. He's a king not like the nations have. A king of a kingdom not like we see in the world, but a righteous, loving, good, heavenly kingdom. And God's word promises that one day Jesus will return and he will bring the kingdom of God fully and finally into this world and he will redeem and restore this world. And until the Lord returns, until our king returns, we are charged to pledge allegiance to him as king, to devote ourselves fully to him in obedience as king. So let's stand together, hear this charge from God's word as we prepare to worship. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. He who is the only blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and dominion eternally. Amen. Amen. Let's worship our great God, a King who dwells in splendor. Worship him, look to him, submit to him, and live for him.